Ferdinand Götzen reporting to you from Amsterdam. And I'd like to welcome you to the second episode of Candid Growth Chats. In this episode, I will be speaking to Ronald Forn. Ronald Forn is one of my favorite people in marketing and one of the greatest marketers I've met. He is the former global CMO of Heineken, a brand I'm sure all of you are familiar with, maybe some of you a little bit too familiar. And he has really, he's really been around the block. He's been doing marketing long before I even considered a career in the field, um, and probably long before many of you did as well. And uh, he is one of those few people who not only has been around the block, but also really has stayed with the times and kept up with the newest trends and the newest technologies. And uh, he's a brilliant marketer, and we talk about everything from how to make sure that you market ethically, why customers need to be at the center of all of your commercial efforts, why he would create a board of customers to advise any company if he were to start one, and uh, the importance of building brand salience, the importance of considering mental availability, the importance of penetration in the market. We talk about literally everything, including how he and his team managed to get uh, Heineken onto James Bond for the first time. Uh, this has been a really amazing session and I am really excited to share it with you. So without further ado, here is my chat with Ronald Forn. As a professional, how has marketing changed in the last couple of decades? How has it changed since the pre-growth hacking era and the post-growth hacking era, so to say? If I would have to make a big divide, uh, um, it's actually... Uh, turned around from the realization that uh, where we come from the mass media age, where it was transmit, 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 and uh, as long as you could influence consumers, you were doing really a great job and, and you had commercials for it and ads and billboards and sports sponsoring and a limited number of instruments and tools, basically. Uh, and that has, has disappeared. And um, is that a reason to be sad? No, I don't think so. Is it a reason to be careful of what we're talking about? Yes, absolutely. And that's why I was happy with Louis, uh, because now we have an abundance of algorithm-directed messages that actually are responsible for a lot of fake news around the subject of marketing, because we now have everybody who's actually doing social media uh, uh, posts, thinking that they're working in marketing and also mentioning that. And they think that that's really all there is to know about marketing. And that's a sad kind of thing. Uh, that's the status of where we are. Marketing is also receiving more and more bad rep. Uh, we have to do a lot of work in, in rebranding marketing, uh, I would say, uh, for the next decades. And the only way we can do that, and now we come more to yeah, nowadays, is actually marketing should be dead. Um, I, I, th I think the most interesting question you could ask people, like, if marketing would not be there anymore tomorrow, how would you organize <laughs> How would you organize it? And I think the, the people who are a little bit longer in the field realize that you have to flip the whole uh, chain around. You have to start thinking from the consumer um, uh, all the way in and also other stakeholders next to consumers, like because you always want to take care of uh, profit, not only profit, but also people and planet. Uh, so there's also something to take care of in terms of community marketing, of purpose marketing, or however you want to call it, uh, ingrained in your own DNA, uh, driven by your vision and mission as a company. Um, so start thinking from the other side, start thinking from the consumer, start thinking from all the other stakeholders that are relevant uh, to your business, and then work your way back. And then 
realize that what marketing is doing, and then I'm talking about terms of uh, product, price, place, promotion, the classical four Ps, and you can make it into seven and eight and there's a lot of la-di-da-di-da, but it comes down to those simple kind of uh, activities that you have to take care of together with everybody else in the company. Because, I mean, marketing as such is just a silo as much as finances or purchasing or production or, and we should get rid of that. And we should get rid of that in education also, because all universities and all uh, applied universities as well, they're still organized in, I have an economic education, I have a marketing, I have uh, what have you, um, you have uh, uh, engineering, you have bookkeeping, you have, it's all organized still in the old fashioned ways that companies are organized in silos, in departments. And I think the my most worthwhile experience has been that interesting products and services are made taking the consumer as a starting point and then organizing yourself around those processes that are necessary to get the job done. And that was the, the interesting kind of, for me, eye-opener as well to uh, meet the people in at the Growth Tribe uh, and to follow the courses there and especially also the artificial intelligence and machine learning one, the beta version of that. I, I really enjoyed that one. Uh, but that, that's where you saw that the trick is more about organizing yourself with relevant uh, knowledge and insights and capabilities and competencies in little teams around a certain issue you want to solve for consumers. And, uh, and I think that's the way to go. And uh, I'm glad to uh, be able to announce that we now set up uh, a new master study uh, in uh, data-driven business, it's called. Uh, it has been accredited now by the Dutch uh, Academic uh, Society that's taking care of all the accreditations here in the Netherlands. And we're launching this September with already now 84 different students already that are going to follow that master um, uh, program where we have the combination of colleagues of mine from finance, from data intelligence, from IT, from now you name it, all the relevant, but now for the first time ever together. And um, the students that we're looking for also come out of those different kind of silos are put together in multifunctional teams. That's the way they're going to work throughout their whole uh, master program. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that one, by the way, because that's the first one of its kind, uh, at least in this country. Um, and it's, it's yeah, already so successful in terms of uh, applications that we are over the moon by it. Where was this over a decade ago when I started history and political science? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm thinking exactly the same thing. You know, if there's one regret in my life, if, if you would ask me, it's actually I've been born too soon. I mean, the, 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 yeah, I mean, the age you guys are in right now, I mean, the possibilities are limitless. It's so interesting what is happening. Actually, there are no boundaries. I mean, if you, if you allow yourself to be educated and you, you experiment a lot, and science the shit out of it, uh, as I heard somebody say the other day. Then, uh, yeah, you think of an idea, you make a minimal viable uh, uh, object, uh, product, and you bring it into the market, you learn and you improve, and you learn and improve, and above it. That, that's the way to do it, you know? I mean, yeah. The big thing of our master is that they, we have to make it relevant for practitioners. It's, it's a study that's at the Applied University in Utrecht, which is a different kind of focus point than another university I'm teaching in the University of Twente in consumer psychology and marketing communications. And that master, yeah, that's, that's also training people to become academically founded thinkers 
But when we do thesis, the primary goal is to also add knowledge to the body of knowledge, as we call it. Yeah. And, and then, and when it's applicable to daily practice, I mean, especially in Trent as a technical university, we do loads of stuff in terms of inventions that are applicable in the, in practice. But it's a different focal point uh, a little bit. So, yeah. You mentioned consumer psychology, and this is actually yeah. uh, one of the big things that I'm curious about because I uh, uh, agree with and, uh, and that I often say is that... Uh, the human mind hasn't really changed in over a hundred thousand years, right? The, the the core tenets of uh, how the mind works and the science uh, uh, hasn't necessarily changed anywhere near as much as uh, as uh, the tools and the tech and the industries themselves. How has consumer psychology changed? Because I imagine that was a huge part of your job at Heineken, and it's something that you teach today. Has that changed in the last ten, fifteen years? And 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 in what way has it changed? I think that we have gained more insight into how psychological processes function in terms of how people make choices and how people have a behavior uh, that is more steered and directed by uh, non-conscious processes instead of that they're thinking all of the time, which they're not. I mean, we, we are very limited in terms of brain power, literally to uh, always think about what we're doing. We, we try to automate how we live. I mean, uh, all human beings do that. And there's all sorts of processes involved. And we've discovered more about in, the, in that area. So the main, the main discovery has been people are not the rational thinkers that people that studied economy always thought, like uh, the homo rationalis, we are not. Uh, we're also not completely irrational because if we would be irrational, we would have had a lot more accidents. So uh, where we can actually automate and in a safe way, we as human beings, we do that. Otherwise, we would be extinct. Uh, that's very simple. And and to, discoveries into that kind of working of our mind, I would say, not only the brain, because that's too much focus on the anatomical gray mass that is there. Uh, people are much more complicated than that. We actually have a mind, which is something that you cannot really touch or grab hold of. But so we think we knew that we know a lot more and we also realize that we know very little. Uh, and also we have failures like with replication problems, like famous studies that, that actually um, were uh, broadcasted uh, uh, broadly in terms of their effects. And now we discovered that they don't have effects um, at all. They cannot be replicated. That's a big problem in, in psychology and social psychology, actually. And then the other thing is that I, I find more and more also with young people around me, which I find really inspiring, is that when you have that knowledge, how do you use it? Do you use it to uh, actually make somebody else do something? like uh, the puppet player, or do you use that to understand the other person better? And I think the emphasis should be on that part of what you do with that kind of knowledge. The other thing is also in marketing, not really a lot has really changed in terms of principles. Anybody that will tell you that it is, is probably trying to make money of you. Uh, basically, there's two really key things, and there's a book I can recommend everybody to read. I mean, Kotler, you have to know Kotler if you want to talk about marketing, but, uh, and Keller also is a really great uh, scientist in this area, but there's a recent, well, I mean, in, in science, we call it recent when it's 2010, but okay, fine. A uh, great book uh, called How Brands Grow. And uh, there's a different, different, there's a How Brands Grow 1 and How Brands Grow Part 2 by Part 2. 
because there's a summary of part one and part two. So you don't have to really read uh, part one. Automate your uh, way. That's written by uh, Jenny Romaniuk and Byron Sharp, and the name Byron Sharp, uh, maybe some of you also know that. And there's a couple of really easy things to understand if you really want to grow brands. And uh, next to the fact that you have to concentrate on consumers, what you have to take care of, first of all, it's mental availability or salience, which is a little bit more than spontaneous brand awareness, because it always also has to do with the content of the memory structures that you're trying to build, because brands are basically memory structures uh, in the brain. Uh, not only with cognitive information, also with affective and also even with cognitive kind of uh, uh, and also attitudinal information. And the other thing you have to take care of is physical availability. And that can be through a website or through a real store. And uh, as everybody knows, you have to be omnichannel these days because we also have scientific proof that those companies that went omnichannel actually grow much harder than the companies that stick on only digital or own uh, or stay with the traditional store concepts. So those are the two tenets that are really, really important to concentrate on mental availability and physical availability. And I think it's a really nice summing up. It's also a bit of repackaging of old knowledge, by the way, that's their own marketing of the Ehrenberg Pass Institute in Australia, where they come from. But I think it's, it, it helps also to have people focus on that whilst they're building brands. And it prevents you from making the mistake that you can grow your way uh, into business with brands by continuously hacking websites and looking at conversion rates and blah, 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 because that's much more of what I call harvesting. And you can only harvest when you also sow. Uh, sow. So you have to invest in building the brands as well. There's different ways to do it. And one of the key things in there is that you get that mental availability uh, uh, done in the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Want another lecture because I have I have fifty more. Oh, there. I could sit there all day. Uh, I'm going to be a hundred percent honest with everybody here. I'm so yeah. happy that all of you have have joined us here. But uh, let's be super clear. I'm doing this more for myself than for anyone else. So uh, this is this is my way to also also get uh, the insights and, and the learning. Yeah, so, so, so I can't get away with making it eight hours long. But uh, yeah, otherwise, I would don't always concentrate on those two main objectives. And there's different ways how you can do it. And uh, uh, they have follow-up books on it as well, and I can recommend that series to, to everybody. Uh, and that will be a great investment in your understanding of what it is all about. And for the rest of it, you know, I mean, I see a lot of repackaging of old things, like, uh, you know, we had uh, advertising that was hidden away in editorial content. Influencer marketing is another one. You know, I mean, uh, through the internet, of course, which was a huge change in technological ways that we could communicate with consumers. Uh, yeah, we do have a question here. So what's the biggest change in the Heineken brand under your guidance? And uh, what was the reasoning behind it? Oh, yeah, I've already left that company in 2008, something like that. Uh, what was the biggest change? Actually, the biggest change was that we actually went back to the history of the brand. Um, I can remember that when I took over from the, the right-hand man of Mr. Heineken, because Mr. Heineken uh, always personally was involved in all the uh, marketing and the advertising, and, and especially with ad agencies and the campaigns and all the sales promotion activities and stuff like that. His right-hand man retired at the same time that Mr. Heineken retired, so that's when I, how I came into the company. And um, we suddenly realized that 
what we don't have anymore is Mr. Heineken making all the decisions. We have to do it now. And when I flew one day into Hong Kong, I suddenly saw blue Heineken umbrellas on a, uh, at the cafe on the terrace. I thought, what? Heineken blue? Why, why are we now using blue, you know? And more and more of these kind of things started to happen. And, and it was like, yeah, but people were changing the logo and blah, blah, blah and on the local level. And yeah, that's not the way to build a, a really world brand. And especially when the media were becoming more and more international as well at that time. We had to find a way actually to um, make everybody live the brand in, in the same way. So what we did, we actually did two things, uh, which I think uh, was not, not only my doing, but it was the whole team. Two main things uh, we actually organized. First of all, we actually went back to the history of Heineken to find the roots of the brand. And we found ways to actually materialize those and make it clear to everybody, make a whole brand story in the right way with the vision behind the brand and the people behind the brand and, and the way that we made rules and guidelines. So it was clear on the marketing piece, what people could decide on local level for which decision they needed my approval, or we had another category that they needed board approval, for example, changing the price of the brand in the country. And um, the other thing that we did well, I think, was that bringing that vision alive so that everybody could understand it was that we also, uh, the rules and guidelines was just a, a tool that, that helped us out, is we organized research in the same way around the world. And it was a great company in those days called uh, Sensidium. And they actually found a way to delve more deeply in, into the understanding of consumers, whereby we were looking more in terms of the, um, yeah, the drivers behind behavior, which were important. And, and what I learned there, uh, what it taught me was, once we started to roll out that research methodology, we started to speak the same language in the company. So. When I would say we have to go uh, more into the left upper corner with the Heineken brand, everybody in the company understood me because they had a sort of circle where you had uh, on the right hand side, uh, okay, it, it's the drivers of people, they're either internally motivated or externally motivated. They can be really open to change and uh, adventurous, or they can be very closed up, uh, more in need of safety and comfort and, and protection. And, and there's a, if you draw brands on that map with all the sub-motivations which are in there, and which is also part of my, the PhD I'm actually doing now, I study the role that human values play in, in the consumer decision process on brands. And this is very much about values, about what are your key priorities and goals in life. And we went, once we started to investigate that and map out where the territory of our brands were, yeah, that was... I think a turning point, I, I, we were pivoting the brand, as we would say now, you know, I mean, it was like, yeah, we found it. Back to the roots, sort of. Yeah, the, back to the roots on one way, clear rules for everybody, and the other way also tools so that everybody could speak the same language in the company. And that's what I've learned. I mean, so important to Absolutely. make sure also as, as a manager, uh, because I've been managing director in countries as well, uh, that you that you speak that you try to have a common understanding of what you're all dealing with and what you're all trying to achieve with each other. It's so important. And then it helps certainly in the international company to, to have the same vocabulary and the same understanding of all the drivers behind it. And th those were the two, I think, really 
uh, important point. And the other one was my team actually did the first booking of James Bond and, and product sponsorship. So <laughs> that was the Heineken for the first time ever visible in a James Bond movie. And uh, Very cool. uh, yeah, that, that, that was really cool. I mean, because that also generated a lot of buzz and, and in, inside the company, like, whoa, you know, see, see our brand. It's an important part of it as well. I mean, marketing is not doesn't belong to the marketing department. Eh? Marketing belongs to everybody in the company. Everybody should be thinking from a, if you do it well, from a customer point of view. And eh? we shouldn't call it marketing also. Maybe we should call it customering eh? because it, it's actually focusing us on the one thing that is more important. And then you can start bringing all the other parts of the company together around that phenomena instead of only talking about very old-fashioned about marketing. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we do have uh, we do have another question, a few actually. This one is uh, is from Casper. It's what what are the main metrics you look at when you are building a brand, both via online and offline sales and online and offline marketing channels? So what are the metrics you look at and how do you balance that between online and offline? Um, well, I can be very short about it. What I don't look at is any social media marketing metrics because they are fluff. They're in the interest of the media owner and not in the interest of the brand. So clicks and likes, yeah, fine, you know, I mean, uh, shares. I mean, there, there is scientific proof that they're proxies for some other things. But what I first and foremost is brand salience. What's the top of mind awareness of my uh, brand versus competitors? And what are the main relevant associations that I have with my brand versus competitors? Um, and especially that word relevant is very important because you can do any marketing you want, uh, growth marketing or long-term long long marketing or whatever you want. I mean, you always have to be relevant for consumers. So, uh, And consumers have their own criteria which they find relevant for any product or service category. So insights into that and managing your brand in, in the right way on those kind of elements is the key uh, performance metric you have to look at. It's the one, the one thing you really have to take care of. And then there are all sorts of other things. There's, of course, there's brand preference, there's uh, brand consideration, there's all sorts of other metrics you could choose. And basically any company um, uh, should also look at uh, their own set of metrics which are relevant to their company in their industry because it might change also per industry and and of course you want to know about uh, it's never about marketing alone it's also about sales eh? it's also about um, how, what's our penetration which has to do with physical availability uh, which you have to take care of so yep. what's the penetration of my brand and and it's different products maybe that are under one brand that i have with um, households and there's a key learning there as well you see more and more, more, a lot of companies actually focusing on loyalty programs. And it's interesting also to read in that book of How Brands Grow, the scientific evidence, because what is far more important is to aim your activities at the non and light users of your product, because those are the ones, if you convert them, you'll start growing. A friend of mine always explains it like it's a graph which you can draw as a banana. So you have here the number of people, and this is the number of times that they use the product in, in, in a year, for example. Now, the heavy users, they are here. You know, they're here like they're, they're buying 50 crates of Heineken a year. You know, yay, great, 50. But if you look at the number, uh, the percentage of the consumers that do that, fortunately, I would say, it's very, very low. 
Now, once you start doing loyalty programs, and it's really counterintuitive uh, because you're actually only trying to get those people that are already consuming a lot to consume even more. Consume, yeah. Tell you, and uh, the, the evidence is out there that it's not much cheaper to achieve compared to actually focusing on many people who actually are here and use you once or twice a year because they probably have a brand portfolio of competitors that they find acceptable and that they interchange for some sort of reason in their usage. So the key thing in here is penetration is the most important next target for achieving growth. So it is mental availability, physical availability, and concentrating on light uses to increase the penetration of your products. Because if you can flip those people that are using you once a year to twice a year, that's a much smaller step than to get somebody to buy 50 crates of Heineken. At a much higher number. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, yep. Uh, and, and also uh, taking also the ethical considerations uh, into consideration, you shouldn't do that. Yep. Uh, with alcoholic products, but nevertheless. Okay, so that, that's another major insight by which you can become much more effective in your profession uh, if you take those three points into consideration. And there's a load of other ones, but these are, if I mean, yep. if ever I will be successful in helping to spread this, then uh, because I'm not the inventor of it, but I'm a big believer in it, then that's really important stuff. That's really Maybe here's a good place to start. I, I see one question. This is also what I ask myself. I think uh, salience, relevance, and penetration, these are things that are that are definitely um, definitely important. And uh, I think uh, a lot of companies follow different branding metrics. Uh, some look at direct traffic, some yeah. do market research. Are there any tools yeah. or specific metrics that you suggest, or do you think it's every company has to figure it out for themselves? How do you look at this? Yeah, no, there's a whole list. I have books about metrics, you know, I mean, they can choose out of 60 metrics. They can join also financial metrics in there, the turnaround speed of products. I mean, there's all sorts of things you, you can do. I can make, give you a whole list right now and then we'll be talking even uh, next year. But the, the big thing about it is, if you want me to be brief on it and, and only say the important stuff, don't look at the medias. KPIs as a metric. Look at what I said, salience, physical availability, penetration, and build your own set of metrics which are, are linked to that and are important for you to keep track of. Yep. And then also uh, don't fall into the trap that, uh, yeah, we go now fully uh, into digital marketing because the big benefit of digital marketing is that we can measure it. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if I have to still convince people that that's foolishness, then uh, I, I don't know anymore. You have to be where your consumers are. That's the key thing. That's another lesson. Go where your consumers are. Learn how they live. Learn who they talk with. Learn who they love to spend time with. Learn what they do when they spend time with others. Um, and make sure that you also... Um, maybe too crude to say it in that way, know where their eyeballs are and when, and their ears and their noses and all the other senses that we use to make uh, yeah, judgments about things in order to make the proper choices in our life. And more specifically, we do that more on a non-conscious level or subconscious level. Um, I think that, and I think that's, that is far more important. Yeah. 
So you said that uh, that your team was uh, was the team that uh, that uh, got Heineken into James Bond, so to say. How do you measure? Is this something that you strategically say this will be beneficial? This brand association has enough value in yeah. itself, or do you actually measure something as a result? Um, and if so, what do you measure? If you have the money for it and the systems, you usually look at what is the the effect in itself that is relevant for the final effect that we're interested in. Uh, so in this case, you want to know, are, are we actually combining the right associations or strengthening the right associations in that associative uh, construct that is the Heineken brand? Does this concept of James Bond do the right work? And we measure that. But more importantly... Surveys or do you just talk to people or... I guess that's uh, the only way. Right? You, you measure it. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can do it. You can do it in focus groups. You can do it in more indirect ways. You can use it even uh, implicit attitude tests uh, so that you don't ask people, but yeah, you get them to answer certain things. So you can actually uh, more in, on an implicit level, more subconscious level measure. You can have, there's a word completion test as one of the methods, for example, to see. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch, uh, uh, I've, uh, and there's a great book out there with all the methods that you can use also to, to delve into the more imp implicit uh, parts of uh, the decision process. Um, and there's different techniques uh, that range from a very simple word completion test or IAT to the ones that you have to be a bit careful about with uh, fMRI and uh, e e ECG and all the other ones that claim to be able to look inside the brains of consumers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but, uh, but, but you look at uh, the, the, the desired associations, of course, and uh, you can measure that. The other part is then, does it help the awareness of the brand, uh, the spontaneous awareness? Uh, does it help with the brand consideration? That's another metric that you could use to also. Yeah, and then finally, you look at, uh, did it do something bottom line after a certain amount of time? Eh? Did we sell more? But there's usually a time gap between what you invest and, and what you get back in, in sales. And, and these days we're running many campaigns. This kind of sponsorships, you also use them to uh, make them relevant into sales objectives. So you invite the category buyers from Albert Heijn and Carrefour and to the film viewings and stuff like that. And you build specific sales promotion activities with them. So, or nowadays you would say activation program. And, uh, and that's, that's how you also use it actually to, um, to stimulate your sales in, in, uh, with those yeah. kind of tools as well. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. I think uh, it becomes more and more challenging the more stuff you do at once. I think uh, if you're doing 10 to 15 big campaigns at once, which in the, experimental kind of teams very often is the case, then it might be a bit harder to look at the bottom line and really know what's causing yeah, that Yeah, but that's also because the fiction is still out there in those kind of teams that it's possible that, that we're talking about an A-B connection. That communication is you push a button and then you get an effect. And, yeah. and it doesn't work always like that. I mean, you cannot do activation programs or run campaigns, as, as we so more, uh, nicely call it. If you haven't invested in people having a really, really positive attitude about your brand. Absolutely. I've never worked for a company uh, that has a strong brand and a strong product in a, and, and is, is strongly positioned in the market where one channel or a number of digital channels account for the maximum or the majority of leads. It's always coming through indirect uh, channels or even direct uh, search. So uh, we also we know scientifically, halo effect. we also yeah. know scientifically, Ferdinand, that in science, we have, we have studies that actually really show that 
the the programs that use offline media and online media in combination actually create multiplier effects. There's a gearing sort of taking place if you do it in the right way. So yeah, fortunately, offline is becoming more and more digital now as well. So uh, you can you can have much more better measurements also of those kind of media. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you mentioned that you're not a big fan of loyalty pro programs or the, the kind of the principle behind it. Are there any brands who you think are doing it well? And uh, what makes what makes a loyalty program good? Uh, good question. I, I know with my mother's generation, there was one brand in the Netherlands that really did it in the right way, or two brands. Actually, it was Dauer Egberts, the coffee brand, and, and there was Albert Heijn. And why? And after that, you had Shell. And why? Because we have this thing in the Netherlands with saving stamps. And when you have a whole book full with those stamps, you can actually can either exchange it for money, but in most cases, very cheap product as well. So with Dauer Egberts, they had a whole collection of uh, coffee-relevant kind of uh, stuff that you could buy with really huge discounts uh, or even for nothing when you had enough stamps. So. We, in the Netherlands, we have this, yeah, this stamps culture uh, that we're very fond of, and people re react to that uh, actually. But um, what was the question again? Yeah, it was oh, a yeah, good loyalty, loyalty program, programs, yeah. but it's about knowing yeah. they know the yeah. customer. Yeah, but all those loyalty programs are now changing as well because it's becoming much, much harder to execute, cost more money, blah, blah, blah. Uh, consumers are more fickle. Uh, they are less loyal than they maybe were before. Um, even, I mean, I'm K KLM, I'm a, a lifetime platinum flyer, which is a, wow, you know, I mean, and now I just got a letter that when I want to take my wife with me into the, the, the special lounge that they have for a platinum flyers, and I have to pay money to get her in. So Very it, platinum. It, it wasn't the case before. So, I don't know, in loyalty programs. Yeah, I think you have to be really good for your existing customers. Uh, you have to treat them carefully. You have to give them the great product you promised them. You have to give them the service that they need. And you have to be there for, for them when they need you as well. I mean, I'm on the, on the, exec, on the uh, supervisory board of an insurance company called uh, Unive uh, Dichtbij, which is one of the cooperatives within the Unive organization. We had one of our people during COVID call with one of our uh, members huh, because we don't have clients. We are co cooperative, so we are members. And they, they called a gentleman, 83 years old, and he, he got Unive on the phone. And he, he was a bit sort of, what do you want from me, of course? Uh, but you're going to try to sell me something. And, and uh, this person from Unive actually said to, to him, no, I just want to know how you're doing. I mean, I know you. You come in the shop. I see you in the in the small town. I'm just interested now at this time how you're doing. He broke down. He was so touched by it. And then immediately in Unive, we thought, yeah, why don't we do that with with all of our members? So uh, especially the older members. So yeah, we started. To, it was was adopted in the whole organization, and we started calling and how people were. And listen, I mean, Ferdinand, that's the way to actually converse with each other. That's when you are, as an organization, also human um, and not only a yeah, tax haven kind of good talking shoe brand. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Maybe maybe one way to put it is... Booking.com uh, for, for that uh, matter, that buying back for a couple of billion your own shares and then keep holding up your money uh, with the Dutch government to for support. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, maybe maybe the key to, to building strong customer loyalty is also to be loyal to your customers. Absolutely. So that I mean, uh, goes both ways. It's a fun thing also with campaigns, for example, in the energy world or in the phone world as well, there's a new heuristic. Uh, we, we are watching a new heuristic being born, which is if I stay loyal to a company, I will pay more in the end. So actually companies are now teaching people by how they are treating people that it's actually worthwhile to change your subscription every year. So they switch from one insurance company to the other or phone company or uh, energy provider or, uh, you know, I mean, it's so stupid. I mean, it's a race to lower margins and nobody will become happy uh, because of that as well. No. You no, have absolutely. to for your, for your customers. I mean, that's the whole business. One question we had, because earlier going back, you talked about uh, how marketing should be called marketing. Maybe we should call it customering. Um, yeah. I nice very story. much hope. I, I, I invite all of you to use this. Uh, let's make this a thing. Uh, I think all the customer success people out there are going to be very happy. Um, one, one question we have is uh, if, we, uh, if we go past, let's say, the traditional functions of marketing and sales into kind of, let's say, a customering setup, let's say a more holistic setup, so to say, yeah. how do you make sure that sales and marketing play nice together in the interest of the customer and the consumer? Well, first of all, I mean, you make one department of it. So there's no, uh, there's no uh, separate departments with separate targets anymore. The second thing is you have marketeers in their career buildup also spend time in sales and vice versa. You make uh, your promising salespeople also work in marketing. And then you have one boss. You have a, you have a, a I really am a believer in that. I, I had that position as well. The marketing and sales director or a commercial director because we didn't have a marketing director, was commercial director in the operations and sales and marketing were working together and reporting to one person. That helps as well. And then the other one is educate people better. Make sure that at the end of the day, we start to redefine this whole field into customering and that there's different things you have to do to become successful in that area. And I think that whole thing with sales and marketing is, and customer care and web care and what have you should be much more uh, combined. Yeah, I agree. I also always believe that sales and marketing will come together. At Recruity, we used to have a sales loves growth and growth loves sales. Yeah. Marketing loves sales, sales loves marketing every month, a meeting where we just share yep. ideas. What we do now, and this is what I would recommend anyone who starts at a senior marketing position anywhere, no matter how big or small the company, sit down with the salespeople from the very first day. Um, the salespeople and the marketing people at 3D Hubs work really closely together. Yeah. We collaborate. We and give each other shit there. sometimes, go out but we go out together. there and... Yeah, exactly. Make it make it obligatory. I mean, if I see you in the office, I think Louis said that last week as well. He had a boss that once told him, "If I see you in the office, you're not doing your job well. Go yeah. out there, meet customers." Our, our growth lead, I said it last week already. He always says, "Get out of the fucking building." You know. Yeah, that's it's a really, uh, really good statement. Yeah. We have another question, uh, which is, if you were to launch a direct-to-consumer startup, you can already hear what kind of question this is going to be. Uh, if you were to launch a direct-to-consumer ah, startup tomorrow or the next month. mistake that they make with startups. Yeah, we're getting there. Go on. What would, what would your first and second marketing, growth, brand, whatever, hires be? Well, who would you hire if you would start oh. a direct-to-consumer startup next month? Oh, wow. Who would your first hires be? can also just be skills. I'm not, I'm not going. Oh, you mean in terms of functions or skills? Uh, not people. Either. Uh, I would hire you, obviously. Who would I hire first? Um, well, if I have to make the right, I, I cannot re-educate people from day one. I will start with it, but I will join in marketing, sales, 
consumer psychology, people that are very well trained in uh, creating um, campaigns. Uh, and I mean both digital and non-digital. Non, uh, and I would put somebody of finance in there as well. Probably they would be linked also into procurement uh, and production planning, because if you, we always had a production planning meeting, we called it, and there you had exactly those people together talking about the sales forecast, and that was actually driving also the production and your purchasing of your raw materials and et cetera. So it's, it's, um, that, that's what you needed in the minimum. First of all, you need a good idea to, uh, to start with. But, um, and the other thing for a really successful startup is make sure that when you're looking for investors, you also build in a budget for marketing. Because I'm, I'm really surprised, or not surprised, that 99.99% of all startups fail when I see courses on how to take care of your marketing. Yeah, you have to, you have to use a snowball method with your family to make your product and brand start out in the beginning. If you know, if you know what, what we just discussed about physical and mental availability and penetration, you need budget for it. You really need Sorry. budget for it. And, and make sure that when you're looking for investors, you have built that in and make sure that you have somebody who can actually help you make that and make it into a good story to sell it to potential investors as well. Maybe too long, long answer to the short. No, story. perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would always say uh, you, you want somebody who, ah. who understands the finance, the maths yeah. and the accountancy. Yeah. And then you oh, want somebody who person. I forget one thing. If ever I would be in charge of a big company again or a small company tomorrow, I would actually organize a consumer board. I would, would really institutionalize it that we have a board, an advisory board consisting out of consumers within the organization who can yeah. give uh, also solicited and unsolicited recommendation, criticism, and, and, and you, you have to keep a flow in that in terms of refreshing the people that are in there. Uh, to make the process work but that that's really i i think what a lot of companies actually don't have i think that would be a very cool idea that would make that makes a lot of sense uh, if you have the customer centricity is, is just so important and i see oh. so many marketers marketers forgetting it um yeah. yeah we have one more question here which is uh is there any uh, marketing strategy or concept that you didn't like or believe in in the past that you've changed your mind about and if not maybe the other way around I see that I have, I have changed myself also in terms of ethical thinking. I, I, I wrote a book called Voodoo Marketing. Why? Because I wanted to make an inventory for myself. Which methods, how does consumer uh, persuasion work? What, what's the latest that we know about that in that area? And which different kinds of tools and tactics we have actually to create persuasion, to persuade people? Because I wanted to find a sort of uh, division into what are ethical, non-ethical uh, methods and, and which ones are, are in between, depending on how you use them. And there I came into contact with uh, uh, the website by, I think his name is Louis Brugnol, uh, Dark Design, uh, dark, dark Patterns, it's called, his website. And he has uh, collected all sorts of methods where the primary job that those people tried to do was actually put consumers on the wrong foot uh, and, and take action in the interest of the advertiser and not in the interest of the consumer. And there's the low ball technique and there's all sorts of techniques that, that they use. I mean, KLM is famous for it as well. 
uh, they advertise it here to New York for 280 uh, euros. And then you investigate it of all the stock in the next three months, so to speak, of all the chairs that they will sell in the next three months. Mm. There's only three chairs, three, that are, are really, in fact, sold for that amount of money. Oh. And uh, that's called the low ball technique. And there's all sorts of con man uh, kind of techniques as well that are used. And yeah, I found it very sexy and very interesting when I was younger. I would have hesitated, I think, less in using some of those methods. Now, absolutely no way. Uh, that, that's, that's a big change, um, I think. And also the understanding that brands and companies should take much better care of the world that they act in. Uh, and that includes their staff, that includes the families of their staff, the, the, the environment in which they operate, the suppliers that they have, um, uh, the customers that they have also in the trade. We have to take care of the, of the globe, uh, the, the, the well-being of our planet, and companies have a role in that uh, in different ways. And what I would like to get rid of next year is all those smooth-talking, big global companies that are preaching purpose marketing and not paying any taxes in their own home country with all sorts of... Uh, Amen. I mean, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I had a big discussion with somebody who said, yeah, but those people are only using the, 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 the possibilities that countries offer them to pay less taxes, and so they evade the taxes in their own country. That is true. And in a sense, because it's the politicians who can change this tomorrow by making better tax laws and not being selfish about it. And, and there's a big case to make for the Dutch government as well, because we are one of the worst culprits in the world in, in this terrain as Dutch people. And the, but the other one is an ethical one. The other one is, hey, if I, I'm part of a society somewhere, I really want to contribute to that society as well. So I should pay my fair taxes notwithstanding the fact that I could have the possibility to actually evade those taxes somewhere else. And that's a different kind of mentality. And you see that back in business. You have the British or the English model of doing business. And you have the what they call the Rhineland uh, method of doing business, which is what we have more in the Netherlands and Germany and countries here, around here. Here, we find it really, really logical that we, we try to take our environment into consideration and be and, and and also look at their interests and their well-being. Whilst in the English model, there's one way. I had a discussion with the guy. He said, "Actually, yeah, that's actually uh, um, not fair to the shareholders because there's only one interest that the company has, has to look after. CEO is the interest of, of of his or hers shareholders. And if you can then make more money by evading tax, and you don't do that, you actually are not working in the interest of the shareholders. Yeah." Um, you got to put the customer sad, first. That's a sad view, and that's that, that's also one of the fundamental problems in business that we have in the economy now nowadays as well. Too much geared to financial growth and not not to human growth. I think uh, companies just have to take the lead and uh, set an example. It's, uh, yeah, but it's also young people like you and probably also your watchers because I'm an old fart. But the people, I mean, you have your whole career still ahead. You can still influence this game in a big way. So. Uh, <laughs> Please be my guest. Make my day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll do our best, Ronald. We'll do our best. <laughs> I have one last question because uh, sure. we hit All the right. hour. People can always mail me as well. You, I mean, if they mail you with a question and, and you send it to me, I will also answer it. So don't worry. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Again, if you want to send any messages to Ronald, to myself, I can also relay them. Please don't hesitate. Uh, um, I do have one question, which is, sure. you're a lecturer, right? You, you chose to go into the academic route and you now lecture students at the University of Twente. Yeah. What is their reaction when they arrive? Because I remember arriving on my first day of university and it was an incredibly boring lecture given by somebody I'd never heard of. And these, yeah. these people, they get to arrive at a lecture room where the former global CMO of Heineken is teaching them about marketing and consumer psychology. How, do they, how does that relate to, 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 to the attention you get from them and uh, to the, the activities that you have with your students? Because I always wonder, I was wondering what kind of, how, how, what kind of students do you get? How do they react? What is the, what is the relationship well, like with them? First of all, I think it, it, it actually, for me, underlines the big responsibility that I have as an educator to be relevant to the future of my students. So that's how I look at, at uh, uh, being uh, working in education. And I try to make it fun as well. Um, I've, I've been, I mean, I did my last master in 2013. And that was in Twente too. I was one of the students themselves uh, not, not so long ago. So I know what they go through because I've gone through it myself per, uh, as well. I mean, I have a lot of young uh, new friends again from that period because I was a full-time student just as my fellow students were 22, 23. But I know what they've gone through. I know how boring some of the lectures can be. And that, that's not on purpose, but I mean, yeah, some people know how to tell or present stuff in a more uh, exciting way than others. And I always include my students as well. So I, I'm much more into co-creation of the, of the education than anything else. I mean, now with COVID, we had to switch from face-to-face uh, uh, -face education to online education just in one week. I mean, the whole, I'm so proud of everybody who did it. In one week in the Netherlands, we went, and other countries as well, we went from, face-to-face, -face, classical, old-fashioned ways of educating, hope using online tools to do that. I actually invited three or four of my students to join me in looking at the content I was making for online to see whether it would resonate, it wouldn't be too boring, it would be clear, uh, and they could understand what I mean. And now, So th th that's like co-creation, and I do the same things when I have face-to-face -face, uh, lectures because my students themselves can make and they can earn extra points if they actually read the academic papers and then do a presentation. And then they have extra points towards the final point as well. And I use a lot of practical examples. That's the other trick. Mm -hmm. I try to make all the scientific knowledge also, uh, I try to bring it alive with showing what this means in real life, in real companies. And uh, I, I usually take a lot of examples from newspapers or magazines online uh, or blogs uh, for that matter uh, to actually also post that after the lectures to, to show that what we've been talking about is really happening right now and there's new developments and yeah, yeah that's I mean and you're, also, you're also an entertainer I mean I always find it also so fascinating but other than that, I get into a flow when I feel right about my content with my students and I see the energy flowing there mm. and they like that as well. I mean, I love doing it actually, by the way. And what, what, what motivated you? Uh, sorry, I said it was the last question. Two more. These are the last well, two. I actually, and then I, I, I actually closed the loop in my life. I mean, I, when I did my high school, I actually wanted to become a teacher in French and history. Can you imagine? 
and I actually flunked. I mean, after after one year, I actually thought, man, I mean, these are these are real subjects I love so much, and I will never be as good as my favorite teachers that I had, who were the reasons for me to want to become a teacher. So I actually switched. I had to go into the military then because we still had this draft system in the Netherlands. And then, uh, then it was more a choice of, okay, what are our exciting subjects? And then I got into advertising and anyhow, that's, uh, that's, that's where it all began. But I never closed that loop. So when I wanted to consider something else in my life and making a switch and going back to the Netherlands where I, I'd been away for 15 years, I didn't have a big network anymore in business. And then I thought, yeah, what, what will really make me happy? I was 53 at the time, 52. I thought, yeah, I mean, I'm going to make a circle around. I'm going to teach. And that's actually um, until this day. I love that I've done it. I've, I've never regretted it. I mean, it pays shit, but um, it, it's great doing it. It's so much energy. And that's, that's in the end of the day, you know, I mean, that's more important. That's uh, that's great. Honestly, I think we should end it on that note. I think that's uh, the perfect, the perfect. There are two more questions. I'll uh, I'll refer them straight to yeah, you. Yeah. Um, Ronald Forn, V O O R N, uh, can be found on LinkedIn and the socials. Ronald, thanks for the candor. Really appreciate it. Yeah, um, and come look me up at Twitter because uh, I I prefer Twitter over LinkedIn. I mean, Twitter over LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Ronald. For those of you uh, who joined thanks us, thanks for inviting me. Oh, thank you. Uh, wish everybody a really good career. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. Take care.